We are going to be in Luke chapter 4. So let me get my Bible out as well. Luke chapter 4. We are going verse by verse through the book of Luke. And uh, one of the reasons we do that, I say this regularly, but it's worth repeating. We go through entire books of the Bible verse by verse because that allows God to set the agenda for what gets preached in this church. Uh, We don't get to skip anything. We don't get to skip any of the hard passages. We don't get to just preach whatever I feel like preaching on any given week. We go all the way through books of the Bible so that we learn the whole Bible collectively as a church, and we preach on all the hard topics as well. Well, today we come to a fascinating passage in the life of Jesus. Thus far, the gospel writer Luke has told us about the, the the narrative of Christ's birth, And we've really picked up when he was beginning his ministry. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. He then was immediately sent by the Father into the wilderness where he was tempted. And if you remember, what we saw in that temptation uh, scene was that this was not a defensive story of Christ being beat up on by Satan, but Jesus showing us how to defend himself. Jesus marched into enemy territory, into the wilderness, and declared victory over the devil. That's what he was doing in that scene. Today, as we continue our passage, our, our, our story of Luke, we're going to see the outworking of that exact narrative taking place. Jesus went into the devil's territory, into the wilderness, and he defeated him at his own game. He declared, your temptations have no power over me. And now in this passage today, Jesus goes to the city of Capernaum, and we're going to see that he continues to cast out demons by the power that he had brought when he ushered in the kingdom of God. Jesus, alive, bringing the kingdom of God into, the, into, our, into, into earth. Now, a little bit about Capernaum. Capernaum is a fascinating city. In fact, if you were to go to Capernaum today, the ruins of Capernaum, you could actually see the synagogue that we believe is this exact synagogue where this scene takes place. Now, originally, they found a second century synagogue ruins, but then they dug underneath that synagogue ruin, some archaeologists did in the last few years, and they found underneath it a, a, another synagogue from the previous century, which is where, when Jesus spoke. So you could go and stand today in the exact place where this was. In fact, later on in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to meet an interesting man in Luke chapter 7 named Jairus. Jairus was a centurion. He was a God-fearing man who lived in Capernaum, and the people of Capernaum said that he helped build their synagogue. Interesting how this all ties together. So this scene takes place in the synagogue that Jairus helped build and that you can go walk in today. And throughout this passage, the rest of chapter four, the word rebuke is used three times. Three times Jesus rebukes someone or something. And I want to build our our message today around those three rebukes as we consider what they mean for us. First, Jesus rebukes demons. Jesus rebukes demons. Chapter 4 of Luke, verses 31 to 37. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Let's pause right there. Now, 
The first thing we see is that Jesus rebukes demons. Now, whenever I teach on demons, I always want to just say a word right up front to those who are uh, unfamiliar with the church, or perhaps you're coming in here and you're skeptical of talk about demons. Maybe you're in here and, and, and you hear talk about demons and you hear talk about the devil and you hear talk about the spiritual world and what you think immediately is that's old fairy tales. We're a much more rationalistic society and we explain a lot of things that they used to think about with demons and angels. We explain those now with scientific analysis and with you know, the chemicals in the mind and that's the real world that we live in. So what's this pastor doing talking about demons? And what I wanna say to you is that in fact, what the Bible says over and over again is with total clarity, we live in a world that's far more complex than what we can see with our eyes. We live in a world that has spiritual realities taking place behind all of the physical realities that we see. Even something like wars taking place, nations going to war against nations. Biblically, there's always a deeper spiritual reality taking place with those events. And with our world, our, our more kind of uh, mundane operations of day, living daily lives in the city of Chicago, you and I come across demonic authorities and angelic authorities regularly. So if we're going to be serious students of the Bible, if we're going to take God at his word, we cannot be skeptical of these things. This is the biblical worldview. This is how God has instructed that we are to engage. Now, with that said... Let's look at this first encounter that we see of Jesus engaging with a demon. Jesus has already defeated the devil, right? He already defeated him, not officially defeated him, he'll do that at the cross, but he's already uh, been attacked by the devil and he's shown that he was triumphant in that moment. But now he goes and engages with lesser demonic spirits. Now, first uh, Jesus goes into this Capernaum synagogue and we realize that there is a man standing in the synagogue who has a demonic spirit inside of him. What's going on there? Well, first of all, you know, it would have been a scene kind of like this. It was a Sabbath. They were gathered to hear from the preaching of God's word. More than likely, most of the people in the room didn't know that one of the men standing there had demons inside of him. This isn't like they were gathered and then there was a guy over here who just kind of was disheveled and just doing demonic things and everyone knew there's the demon-possessed guy over there. The, the demon manifested himself only after the preaching of God's word in the presence of Jesus and the power and the authority of Christ in his midst. Then the demon manifests itself. Now, this communicates something to us. It's very possible to be in a place like this and to have people who are put together, who are, look like they have everything together, might not even realize that they are being attacked by demonic powers that, that are happening in their life. That's the world that we live in. Demons sometimes manifest themselves in very visible ways, clearly. In fact, I believe just last week I had a very clear encounter with a demonic possessed man. I believe totally that's what happened. Many times, however, they're disguised. You can't see it until you dig in and you really begin to pray fervently about what's going on in a person's life. Listen to what this demon possessed man says to Jesus. Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? That word ha, it, it's this expression of almost angst. It's not a mocking of Jesus. It's a, it's a cry. It's an agony. It's a ah! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Now listen to this. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
Now, something like that's going to happen again later on in the passage. Uh, Where is it? Down in verse 41, where they say, We know who you are, the Son of God. The demons know all about Jesus. Now, what are demons? Demons are spiritual entities who often take upon them or inhabit physical bodies. Throughout the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels, we see even that Jesus at one point will cast demons into a herd of pigs. They oftentimes take on physical bodies and manifest themselves through that person or through that uh, body, however they do it. And many times we have encounters in our daily life with people who we think are just, you know, maybe they're being mean or they're being angry or they're acting foolish in some way, when in reality there's demonic control going on. Now, consider what this demon knows. He already knows exactly who Jesus is. This demon's been around for a while. Spiritual beings were created by God. I don't know the exact timing of when each demon got created and what the timing of all that was, but this particular demon knows Jesus. Why? Because he's seen him before. The people in the synagogue don't quite know exactly who Jesus is yet. They, 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 they're watching, they're amazed at the authority with which he teaches. They're all speaking about one another. Reports of Jesus are spreading across the countryside. They recognize someone important is here, but they don't quite know who he is yet. In fact, earlier in chapter four, when, when, when they started to realize, oh, he's claiming to be the Messiah who fulfills Isaiah, or, or Psalm 61, then, then they immediately tried to kill him. They said, you can't be that person, but the demons recognized him. He's the second person of the Trinity. We know this authority, and we're in his presence now. Now, this, what do the demons then do? They control his body. It says the demons throw his body onto the ground, and then they speak through him. A few weeks ago, I highlighted for us three ways, or three of the most common times when demons will attack Christians. Okay? And, and one of my jobs is I preach the gospel of Luke, and we're going to do this regularly. Anytime we come across a passage that has to do with demons, I'm going to keep equipping you for spiritual warfare because I think we have been blinded to the reality that's happening all around us. And my job as a preacher is to open our eyes so we see reality as it really is through the biblical worldview. A few weeks ago, we talked about three times that Christians should know they're going to be attacked by demons. If you remember them, let me see if I can remember them. Number one was... It was when you have been, when you're weak, tired, lonely, or beat up, when you're sick. Remember, we saw Jesus after he had fasted for 40 days. That's when the demons, that's when the devil attacked him. Another time we'll see is when you're having some level of ministry success, or when you're riding a spiritual high. You've come back from a retreat. You've just finished an amazing book. You've just heard a sermon that moves you. Often at those moments, the devil will particularly attack you. Another time that the, the demons often attack Christians is when we let sin into our life. We've got some kind of habitual sin which we're unrepentant of, and it's in those kind of footholds in our life that the devil comes in and attacks. Now, today I want to equip us in a different way. How do demons attack? What does it look like to be attacked by a demon? We have to be able to diagnose these things. We have to be like a good surgeon who takes the x-ray of what's going on in our life and says, wait, I know what this is. And then we have the tools to move on past it. Let me give you five ways that I see from Scripture. There's many more. Five ways that I see are very common ways that demons attack. By the way, not only in Scripture, but from being a pastor for 10 years, I've watched this happen. Number one, the devil and demons will often attack Christians and cause them to doubt their salvation. 
He'll cause them to doubt their salvation. Let me give you an example of this. I think Peter is a great example of this. What happened to Peter? In Jesus' hour of need, when Jesus was being arrested, Peter had a moment, an opportunity to be courageous for Christ, but he was a coward. He couldn't stand up to, to even a servant girl in the, in the courtyard who asked him if he, knew, if he was the guy that was walking around with Jesus. And he failed Jesus in that moment. And we see Peter just beside himself, weeping, running away from Jesus. And I think what the devil oftentimes does is he takes our weakest moments when we fail in some way. He takes moments when we've, we've made a mistake or we've, we've proven to be a coward in some place of our spiritual walk or proven to be weaker than we'd like to imagine that we are. All of us do this at times. And then he begins to whisper in your ear, you were never really part of his crew. You, you were a hypocrite the whole time. You deceived a whole lot of people in the church. They thought you had the, the Holy Spirit in you, but, but you've just proved your colors. Better that you don't go back to that place. You don't, you don't, you're better off alone because that's who you really are. This is what the devil does. And what, is, what does Jesus do to, to wounded Peter? Jesus comes back up to Peter and he, he ministers to him. Three times Peter had let Jesus down and three times Jesus looks at him and says, who are you? What's your name? Well, this is what I'm commissioning you to do. He ministers to the need. Whenever you see that doubt coming into your mind, am I really saved? Have I let Jesus down? You stand on the rock of Christ. If you've placed your faith in Christ and you have a mustard seed of faith and you've made him Lord of your life, you immediately, you tell that demon to go away from you. Second thing he'll do to you, the demons will try to keep you from God's means of grace. What are the means of grace? The means of grace are the, the things in life that God has ordained to build you up and encourage you in your faith. Demons will oftentimes whisper in your ear on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night, you don't need the church. You had a busy week, you're tired, you've been a little under the weather. You know, you got a busy week starting first thing in the morning Monday, better to sleep in. You don't need the communion meal. That's just, that's just religion. That's, it's small group tonight, but man, work kept you an extra hour. You don't need those people tonight. It's better for you to go home, just relax, get caught up on some things. That's what your soul really needs. See what they do? They just, and they, they, it sounds rational. It sounds, it sounds logical. That does sound, yeah, I've ha I have had a busy week. Yes, I am tired. No, I, I went to small group last week. I'll make it up now. I'll be there next week. I don't need it tonight. See what he's doing? He's just whispering you. But he's keeping you from the very means of grace that God has ordained to build you up, to strengthen your faith. He's keeping you from the gathered church. He's keeping you from the preaching of God's word. He's keeping you from the communion meal. He's keeping you from biblical community. He's keeping you from the word of God. He's keeping you from your prayer closet. All of these things are the things that are gonna make you strong in your faith. When you see those things, what do you do? When you begin to hear those whispers and you think it's your own mind, but then you realize, wait a second, my own mind, I love the Lord. Why am I having thoughts about not going to church or not reading my scriptures? I know where that comes from. Number three, the devil will often try to drown Christians in the cares of this world. A wonderful example of this in scripture is Ananias and Sapphira. In the book of Acts, I mean Ananias and Sapphira. They were, they were consumed with the cares of this world. They wanted to give financially to the church, but they wanted to give in such a way that made them look like they were real generous, that made them have some kind of credibility, all the while while holding back a portion of what they said they were giving to the church. Why? What was their problem? 
They were more concerned with what people thought about them than they, than they were with honoring Jesus. They're confronted by the leaders of the church and they say, it was your money. You didn't have to give it to the church. You could have kept it. Your motivation was all wrong. See, this is what the devil, devil will often do. often do. He'll consume us with the cares of this world. He'll whisper in your ear, what do they think about you? You know, if you, if you did this, this way, that would give you approval in the eyes of men. Or maybe it's not approval. Maybe it's, maybe it's just the cares of this world, the things of this world. And that, you just whisper, that, that whisper comes into, into your mind, you need more. You need more. You don't have enough. You need, you need to gather more for yourself. You know, you, you've earned this. You've worked hard. You need more. And all the while, you're reading the scriptures and, and, you're, and you're seeing the call to give more and more away. And you're seeing the call to care for the vulnerable and love the needy and, and bless the church. And the devil just whispers in our ear, doesn't he? Number four, the devil will oftentimes inundate the Christian with worry and fear. Oh, church, we're consumed with this. He just whispers in your ear, what's gonna happen tomorrow? And, and he begins to paint a picture of all the ways that, that, that your circumstances could go terrible. He begins to, to whisper in your ear, it's gonna all fall apart. Or what if, what if this happens? Or, or, or what, if, what if they hear about that and, and, then, and then that happens? What if, we, what if we stay in Chicago and, 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 and then it all falls apart? Or, or what if we move and then we made the mistake and, and you get stuck in worry and fear and, and over and over. This is exactly what happened with Mary and Martha. She was anxious about many things. Meanwhile, it was the other sister, it was Mary, who had taken her place at the feet of Jesus and just was in the presence, just enjoying him today. That's what she had right now, enjoy him today. Church, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with large groups in this church talking through the issues of the church, and the number one thing I hear over and over again is worry, fear, and anxiety. Where does that come from? What does Jesus teach us? Today's worries are enough for today. Leave tomorrow to tomorrow. Leave the tomorrow to the Lord. God closes, God closed the grass of the field. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Today's worries are enough for today. We have no control over what happens tomorrow. Leave that in your Savior's hands. He's got you. Number five, he will oftentimes make repentance seem easy and sin seem light. What does this mean? Well, oftentimes the devil will, look at you, will whisper in your ear when you're in some kind of sin, and he'll say, this is, it's not that big a deal. Everyone does this. Everyone feels this way. Everyone's motivated this way. And you begin to justify it. You begin to justify your sin because that whisper is coming into your head. It's not a big deal, and I can just repent of it anytime I need to. It, you know? And then what happens is the sin, it slowly grabs onto you and it, it slowly becomes a stronghold in your life that just is manifesting itself in all kinds of brokenness. You slowly start stepping away from the church. Why? Because, because you've been justifying little sins. Little sins will always lead to bigger sins. That's the pathway. You find a little sin, you root it out in the name of Jesus. Otherwise, it's gonna manifest itself further down the road. One writer, Thomas Boston, he writes, I think this is Thomas Boston. He writes this, he says, every sin strikes at the honor of God, the being of God, the glory of God, the heart of Christ, the joy of the spirit, and the peace of a man's conscience. And therefore a soul truly penitent strikes at all, hates all, conflicts with all, and will labor to, labor to draw strength from a crucified Christ to crucify 
all sins. We don't entertain sin. Jesus went to the cross to give you new life, to give you a whole new nature so that your heart could be changed in order to cherish God, in order to live the life that is truly life. How many of you know that sin always leaves you empty? You think it's gonna give you happiness, you think it's gonna be, man, this is really life, and then you wake up, you know, at one point, you wake up looking at where your life has gotten to, you go, man, that was empty. What was I thinking, thinking I could enjoy that? God's way will always bring you life. And so we gotta root sin out immediately when we see it. How does Jesus respond to this demon? Verse 35, Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, I love this phrase, having done him no harm. Luke goes out of his way to say, he didn't even hurt the guy. He didn't have a bruise because Jesus said, be gone. What do we do with demons? This is what you do. In the name of Jesus, no. Get out and watch them flee. Because what's happening in that moment? Is it that simple? Could it really be that simple? Well, yes. It takes prayer. Some demons can only come out through prayer and fasting. We know that from scripture as well. But at the end of the day, you go in the authority of Jesus. And whatever authority a demon has, Jesus trumps it. Jesus is the highest authority there is. And when he came, he defeated the devil at his own game. He cast demons out. And when the devil thought he had him on the ropes and beat him at the cross, killing him, What did Jesus do? He rose from the grave and he took death captive, defeating the devil once and for all, which means the devil has no authority over a Christian. If you believed in Jesus, the best a demon can do to you is taunt you, manipulate you, and try to get you to believe a series of lies. But if you know their lies, if you know the word of God and you know the power of Christ, then what that says is is that you have an authority in the name of Jesus to cast that demon out. I've told a story a handful of times. There was years ago, uh, years ago, one of my daughters, my oldest daughter, was having nightmares in her room. And uh, the nightmare particularly was of an older woman that was over her bed and scaring her. And the first time I heard the, the nightmare, I, I remember, I didn't think much of it. Kids have nightmares. And then I heard it again. I, you know, I, I thought that's kind of weird, and then I didn't think much of it. And then she shared it again. She said, Dad, that old lady was over me again last night, over my bed, pointing at me. And I said, oh, okay. We gotta take care of that. Went downstairs, prayed fervently over that room. Never heard from that demon again. We live in a spiritual world filled with demons. As a Christian, you have an authority, and it's not your authority. It's the authority of Jesus, the name that you go in, your Lord, your master, who has defeated every spiritual enemy you will ever confront. You don't need to be scared of them. You don't need to fear them. They're a defeated enemy, and they are flailing around doing whatever they can to distract Christians from being effective in ministry. You conquer them in the name of Jesus. You rebuke them the way Jesus did. Jesus rebukes demons. Number two, Jesus rebukes sickness. This is amazing. Luke chapter four, verse 38 and 39. After that scene, Jesus arose, same day, left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her 
And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now this language is very interesting and it's caused theologians to kind of waffle back and forth on on what's happening in this scene. It's a weird word to say he rebuked the fever. Typically you rebuke a demon or you rebuke a person and that's caused a lot of thinkers over the years to say maybe what was happening to Simon Peter's mother was that she actually had a demon and what Jesus was doing was he was rebuking the demon that was causing the fever, okay? I don't think that's the case. It doesn't say he rebuked a demon. It says he rebuked the fever. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, it means a handful of things. It means that Jesus has authority to heal, both spiritually and physically. Let's walk through both of those. Jesus heals spiritually. What do we mean by that? Well, Every follower of Jesus knows what it means that Jesus is able to heal spiritually. Before you knew Christ, you had a sickness that was leading to death, and that was called sin. You were on your deathbed. It might have been a lot of years till you, you officially kind of hit that final moment, but you were on your deathbed sick and dying, and your disease was sin. But when Jesus came into your life, he saved you. He was the antidote to the sickness of sin. And he gave you life. He moved you from the deathbed to someone who just like Simon Peter's mom, she got up and immediately began to serve Christ. That's what, that's what Simon, she's a picture for us of what it means to follow Jesus. She was sick and then immediately she began to serve the Lord. And when you put your faith in Christ Jesus and you believe that his blood was shed for you on the cross, that he died underneath the judgment of God that was owed you, and that he offers you free life, free forgiveness of all of your sin and the life that is truly life. When you believe that, you move from death to life in Christ, and he heals you spiritually. That's every one of our stories. Jesus is able to heal spiritually. Now, what's the implication of that for us? That means that if you have anybody in your life who does not know Jesus, They are on their deathbed. But you know a doctor who can heal them. And your job is to constantly love that person so much that you go before the throne of grace and you ask the mighty doctor if he would heal them of their sickness, of sin, and bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ because that is the only place where life can be found. That's the healing that our doctor can bring. But Jesus also heals fevers. He heals all kinds of sicknesses in the Gospel of Luke. He heals spiritually, but he's a miracle-working God who also heals physically. Now, how does he heal physically? Well, Jesus heals lots of ways. There's lots of ways. Whenever someone is sick in any way in this church, we pray fervently to God that he would heal them. And we are believing that God can heal miraculously at any point in time. Anytime someone comes with a, with a diagnosis from a doctor, without, without hesitation, we pray in Jesus' name, God, if it would be your will, would you so heal this person that they would go to the doctor's office for their checkup next, and the doctor would be beside themselves in amazement that somehow the problem is gone, and it's impossible. And the person would say, well, I know how it happened because I know a better doctor, <laughs> and he healed me. Jesus is able to do that. Does he always do that? No. Why not? We don't know. Why does sometimes Jesus choose to answer the fervent prayer of the saints that pray for healing, and other times the, the, the fervent prayer of the saints pray for healing, and it's God's will for the, for the sickness to endure? Why? We don't know the will of God. We don't know how he ties all things together and, and how, 
and how he uses brokenness for his glory. We don't know the answer, but this we do know. We have a miracle-working, wonderful God, and we continue to call on him as long as today is today and trust that he's able to heal. We've seen healing in this church. Brings me to tears every time I think about it. We've seen amazing healing in this church, young and old alike, experienced it. We've seen healing come at the hands of doctors. God uses doctors wonderfully. I shared this a a little bit ago, but I want to, a few weeks ago, but I want to share for our doctors again. The work you do, doctors, Christians established hospitals all over the world because they believed that the healing ministry of doctors was the continuation of the work that Jesus did. They believed they were being the hands and the feet of Christ, healing bodies the way he did in this passage. Thank you, doctors, for what you do. God uses you to bring about healing very often. And very often, he goes way over your head. And he just heals on his own authority in his own time. And we pray for both in this church. God is able to heal. We live in the already not yet. We live in the place where we know that one day the final healing, the answer to every prayer for every true brokenness will come. Heaven is on the horizon. And we're one day closer to it today than we were yesterday. And I don't know how all this stuff shakes out that's happening in the world today, whether we got 500 more years left till Christ returns or five more hours. What I do know is that he's coming back. And when he comes back, there's no more sickness. There's no more pain. There's no more tears. There's no more brokenness. There's no more broken bones. There's no more fevers. There's total healing and total life in Christ forever. And we're clinging to that for our hope. He will answer every prayer, if not in this life, in the next. And so we go before him always, always. And we cling to him and believe that he can. I was listening to a podcast recently. It was talking about healing over the years. And uh, there's some people that believe that Jesus doesn't still heal the way he did in these days. And I don't believe that for a minute. I was reading about the life of Charles Spurgeon and one man said, <laughs> one man said to Charles Spurgeon that more people were healed by Charles Spurgeon laying his hands on them in any given year than all the doctors in England combined in that year. And Spurgeon couldn't explain it. He just said, I don't know what happens, but lines of sick people come and boosh and boosh. They just get healed. Now, is that normal? That's not normative for that thing to happen, but can it happen? I believe with all my heart it can. Why? Because I see it in Scripture, and the same authority of Jesus is at work through the Holy Spirit in believers today, and I'm gonna keep praying for it whenever I come across a sick person, and I invite you into that as well. That's faith. That's faith. We're believing the impossible because we serve an impossible God. Number three, Jesus rebukes false agendas. I hope this one, this, this third one, kind of sticks in our hearts real personally. I know I've had to wrestle with this one all week. In fact, even as I was putting this, this third piece together, I, I was a little hesitant to preach it because I knew God, whenever I preach on something, God always first works on me before he lets me work on you. And... Uh, Having to bring my own personal agendas for the church before the Lord is no fun thing. This next scene's interesting, and I'm gonna combine two in one here. He arose and left the synagogue, verse 38. No, verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them, and he would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. That's interesting. Now let's continue to another scene. The word rebuke is not used here, but Jesus will challenge what they say next. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. 
And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, two different scenes here. One, he confronts a demon and rebukes the demon who wants to proclaim out loud that Jesus is the son of God. And Jesus goes and says, be quiet. Now, why would Jesus not want him to proclaim out loud that he was the son of God? Then in the second scene, the crowds come to him and they, they're so in awe of him, they just want to hog him for himself, for themselves. They, they, they don't want him to go anywhere. Just stay with us, Jesus. Just hang out another week or two, please, because this is really good. And he says, that's not why I've come. I've come to preach to other towns as well. Both of these groups had different agendas. And Jesus very clearly sets the record straight of what his agenda is. Now, what was the agenda of the demon? I don't think the agenda of the demon, he thought through it all that much. I think in that moment, he was shrieking in terror at the, the fact that the Son of God was in his presence, right? We know from Scripture, and the demons know full well, that the Messiah came to put to death the work of the enemy, to destroy the work of the enemy, and ultimately, at the end of days, no matter how hard the demons fight, they will be destroyed in the lake of fire. That is their end. They're well aware of that. That's not hidden from them. They read the same scriptures we do. They know what's coming. And so I think when these demons saw the Son of God standing in front of them, they went, oh no, is this it? Now he did come to, to defeat them, but their final destruction is still to come when Christ returns. And so he defeated their power and authority that they had to blind the nations when he first came, to blind us from believing in Christ. But what does Jesus do with this first demon? He says, whoa, whoa, don't say that. Now why? What does the text say? He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, the demons, because they knew that he was the Christ. Jesus was very strategic over the three-year ministry he had. He did things in a certain order and in a certain way so that his exact agenda would be fulfilled according to how his father had planned it. This is why the devil, when the devil tempted him to throw himself from the temple roof and then let the angels catch him in a very crowded place, the devil said, no, that is not the way the father has planned. Why? Because if he would have thrown himself from the temple roof and the angels caught him, immediately everyone would have known he was a supernatural being and, and, and they would have assumed he was something other than what he had come to do. And so Jesus said, that's not the agenda of the Father, no. And once again, they call this the silence of Jesus in the Gospels, the silence in the Gospels, where he does not permit all the information of exactly what he's come to do to be released immediately. He staggers his ministry and he reveals himself more and more and in more unique and more unique ways as he gets closer and closer to his crucifixion, the great work that he came to do, going underneath the wrath of God. He didn't want to jumpstart that process. He didn't want to have the people elevate him as some rival king to Caesar and put him on a throne and start, start marching him through the streets. He wanted to make sure that never happened. He came for a particular task. And anyone with a different agenda than what he had planned he stopped it right there. Now, we are very prone to come into Jesus with our own agendas. This is what we do, and we need to be able to label it for what it is. Let me pick on me. I had three examples that I was gonna give, and I'm just gonna give you one, and it's me. And so uh, just know your pastor is a sinner and a terrible person, okay? When I think about this church, and I think about my motivations for leading this church, I know I love the Lord deeply, 
And I wanna be a faithful pastor. I'm on my knees every morning praying, God, help me to be faithful. That's what I want. At the same time, we live in a world that is so full of temptations for pastors. You know that? I know this is my world, and this might be hard for you to relate to, so I'm just sharing my world with you. We live in a world of social media and mega pastors. Yeah, I was in a, I was in a class recently with a young, and I was hitting it off with this one guy just talking, and he, we're very similar guys, me and him. We just, same passion, same, we love theology the same way. I think he was a very similar pastor to me. And uh, he was sharing in the class I was in, and, and the professor said, tell me about your church. And he said, oh, I planted it seven years ago in Sacramento. And the teacher said, well, how large is it? He said it was about 2,000 people. And you know, in that moment, my heart, all this junk just came out of my heart. I just, and God really worked on me in that. I love our church. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to grow this into a mega church. I, I love exactly the way our church is. But in that moment, I was so jealous and it was, all this yuck was coming out. And, and honestly, I, I, I saw in my own heart, I felt like a, someone popped a balloon in my heart. And I just felt my heart, it go, I just felt so insignificant. And what was the devil doing? He, he was using that moment, he was just pointing at me going, you're, he's something. You're nothing, Rafe. You shouldn't even be in this class. That professor's not even gonna look at you. See how the devil works? And so, so what's my temptation here? My temptation as a pastor is to have an agenda that's not pure before the Lord, to have an agenda that wants to put more, more seats out, that, that, wants to, that wants to do big things for other pastors to take notice. Now, this isn't what I really believe. I'm, I, I love you. I, I love the Lord. But, but on my worst moments, it's all there. Now, for you, you're not a pastor, but you've got a very similar heart to me. And I think what can happen is in our Christian life, we can, we can so get into the comparison game. We can so be, be concerned with the way others are gonna be thinking about what we do or, or how we've achieved something compared to how someone else has achieved something or how suddenly we're not content with the lot that God's given us and what we really want is someone else's lot or someone else's gifts or someone else's skills or someone else's desires or someone else's way they express themselves or someone else's faith and we're not just joyfully obeying the ninth commandment which is do not covet. Just be content with the lot God's given you. And the way it comes out is we begin to have these false agendas with God and they're subtle and they're hidden and we begin to use Jesus and pray prayers that really are not about the glory of Jesus, but they're about the glory of ourselves. And we begin to hope that certain things happen that are not about the glory of Jesus, but about the glory of ourselves. And then we begin to use the church to accomplish those things. We use the bride of, we use the bride of Christ to further our own agenda. Do you know how sick that is? And we all do it, every one of us. It's deep, it's the rotten old nature of ours. But in Jesus Christ, he's given us a new nature. And those old agendas that we have that still kind of rile up every once in a while from the flesh, in Jesus' name, they can be rebuked because you've been made new in Christ. And the greatest good in your life is Christ and aligning your, aligning your whole life to what he's doing and what he's called you to. Each of you have a unique ministry. Each of you are made in the image of God, and if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you're a son or a daughter of the king who's been adopted into his family, and he has not forgotten you. 
He's got a very particular ministry for you. And his ministry for you is to, and your job that you have before a holy God is to figure out exactly what he's asking you to do right now. Not tomorrow, not 15 years from now. What's my call? What are, what's your calling on my life? I know it has something to do with discipling the nations. <laughs> That's all of our commands. I know it has something to do with seeing as many people around you come to saving faith in Christ and grow in the love and, 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 and discipleship of the Lord Jesus. It has something to do with that, but it's gonna look different for each of us. But when we start putting our own agenda over Christ, we need to hear the firm rebuke of Jesus saying, no, no. That will not bring you life, and that will ruin my church. Now, how do we know if we're doing this? Let me give you a few ways to think about this. Number one, when you pray over big decisions in your life, do you genuinely seek God's will? Or do you make the decision and then quickly pray about it so you can say you prayed about it? A lot of decisions there isn't like a, a wicked path and a, and a good path. There are oftentimes both good options. And I think oftentimes the Lord gives you the option to choose. He doesn't always say, this is the exact one you must do. I've, I've labored over decisions in prayer and, and sometimes I just heard the Lord say, they're both gonna be good. Go one way, choose one. But very often we can use that as an excuse to not pray about our decisions. Do you pray about your decisions? Seriously and fervently? Because if you don't, you are putting your own agenda before the Lord's. Do you have a regular habit of confessing this to the Lord? I am not the only one who does this. I know that, okay? If you don't regularly confess this to the Lord, then you're not aware you're doing it. So honest question. Look at your own walk with Jesus. If you have not repented of putting your own agenda before the Lord in the last six months, then you're not aware that you're doing it. And what you need is you need to go before the throne of grace in authenticity and say, Jesus, search me and know me. Reveal my sin. How about this one? When was the last time you thought you knew what you were gonna do but changed your mind because the Lord so impressed it upon your heart? Has that ever happened to you as a Christian? You thought you knew the right thing but then through a series of circumstances or however the Lord used it, through prayer, through the counsel of your, your church, through others, you can't explain why. It doesn't seem like the logical decision, but you're, you're sure Jesus is telling you to do this, so it doesn't make sense, mom and dad, but I gotta do this, right? Have you ever made a decision that way? That, shows, that kind of decision shows me as a pastor, you really are seeking the Lord's agenda, not your own. But if you've never done it, there's a problem there. When was the last time that you did something to serve the Lord and his kingdom that made you radically uncomfortable? You know, to live out what Jesus does in the Gospels and to follow, following Jesus is very uncomfortable even for the best veterans among us. It should always make you uncomfortable. Always. It never gets comfortable. I love evangelizing. I'm always nervous every time I do it. <laughs> I shake before I go. It never gets, it never gets comfortable. It, and it's not just evangelizing, serving people, serving the needs of people, washing people's feet, caring for the vulnerable. When was the last time you've done something uncomfortable for the kingdom of Jesus? That's a sign to me that you're listening to the Lord's agenda over the own agenda you might have in your life. 
We will, till Jesus comes home, struggle with this flesh and the temptations to put our own agenda before the Lord. But whenever we see it rise up, we need to put our foot down in the name of Jesus and say, no, I've been born again to a living hope. My life is not my own. I've been called to follow the king, and that's my greatest desire, and that's where I'm going, even if others around me don't understand it. We've got the peculiar mark of majesty about us because of the blood of the lamb. Now let me close, let me just show you one more, verse 43, let me close on this. Verse 43 says this, but he said to them, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus began the ministry of proclaiming the kingdom of God to all nations when he was alive. And when he rose from the grave, he sent the Holy Spirit and he's continuing that ministry through his church. That is why we're here. What is right for us, what is natural for us is for Jesus to save us and call us home right away. We belong in heaven, that's our true home. We're pilgrims here till the day we die. We're sojourners on this earth. But while we're here, the Holy Spirit is working through his church to proclaim the kingdom, to bring the kingdom into all the dark places of the world, boldly and powerfully to proclaim light and goodness and Jesus to all people. Let your life be about that. Each of you have a different role in that. It's gonna look different for every one of you, but no Christian is off the hook for picking up the work that Jesus began and that the Holy Spirit has empowered us to do. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you so much. We, We are so grateful for the gathered church. We're so grateful for this church. God, I pray for any way that you're bringing conviction right now in the hearts of the people in this room that, that you would bring that conviction really deep. I pray that it would not just settle at the surface level, that it would not be like the seed that was quickly picked up by the ravens around and, and the devil takes and snatches it before it can take deep root. I pray, Jesus, that you would bring that conviction really deep. Let it hurt and then heal us by the goodness of the gospel and then, and then heal that wound by the resurrected Christ. Make us a strong church in Jesus. Teach us what it means to follow him wholeheartedly and fervently. I pray in Christ's name, amen.